Okay, we're reading from Genesis chapter 17. We're doing all of 17. It's a long one, so get comfortable. Okay, so, um, all right. So, uh, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will be greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, but you will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of the descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Uh, You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, Uh, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down and laughed to himself and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be a father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money every male in his household, and circumcised them, as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Thanks, Dean. Okay, um... Keep that in front of you and just a little bit of housekeeping. We have um, varied the series through 
Genesis, so we were going to try to get all the way to Joseph, but as I've been preparing and looking at different passages, we want, we're actually going to slow down because there's so much good stuff and it helps us to get a richer understanding. So we're in Genesis 17 today. Next week will be 18 and 19. And if you have one of the church rosters that has the Bible readings on it, that's all a little bit out now. But I just that's, that's why you might notice it. Uh, in accordance, if you're following this in your community groups, um, this wasn't one of the original studies that I published, so I've put out a new um, version of that. It's on the back table. Maybe if the leaders of the groups grab that for their, for their people. Um, yeah, we've got uh, this to look at today, and, and let's just ask for God's help now as we, as we come to it. A loving Heavenly Father... But every aspect of life comes from you and it's found in you. Our Lord, we have abundant and full life in you. Our Lord, we have true and everlasting life in you. So, Lord, we ask that this part of your word, and Lord, my sharing it today, just might be like breath and life to us. God, you're holy in every way and we long to be like you. Lord, you love and care for us so tenderly and deeply. So, Lord, let us experience and feel that care and love by your word this morning. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you're in earshot of someone, um, just turn to them now. And the question that um, I want you to tell them about or answer to them is, what's something in your life that you need to be told more than once about? What do you need to be told more than once about? Now, if you're turning to a spouse, uh, be prepared for an honest answer. But if, you've, if you're not that brave, maybe make eye contact with someone else. I'll give you a minute. What is something you need to be told more than once about? Ten seconds. Okay, uh, quickly. Um, just quickly, who didn't have any trouble thinking of like a bunch of things? Show of hands. Yeah, who only could think of a few things? Okay, I just think of my kids and how many times I've got to tell them to do stuff. Is there any one or two people brave enough to say, this is the thing that I need to be told more than once about? No one? Yeah, John? Uh, that's a good one. Is, whose was in the realm of like cleaning up after yourself or keeping tidy? That's a pretty common thing, yeah. Okay. Sometimes we do need to be told things more than once. And in fact, this is the third big time among a few other times that God has had to come and tell Abraham pretty much the same stuff. You will have a son. You will be a great nation. You will have a land to possess. And it kind of helps us to realize that what we're reading here is kind of like snapshots in his life. When we first encountered him, he was in his 70s. Now he's pushing 100. And God has kept coming back to him. Kept coming back to him. And he must have needed to hear it again. He's kept coming back to him to reiterate what he's promised to him. 
Now, if we remember right back at uh, chapter 12, and, and particularly the third verse in, in chapter 12, when we're first told about God's promise to him, we learn about the blessing. And, and, and God said, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you will curse you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we've like focused more on the language of blessing or of God's promises so far. But just look at that passage again, look at that verse again, and recognize in there that there's actually an element that God has something for him to do. That there's an element in this that speaks of God's mission. Because this is not just blessing for the sake of blessing, this is blessing for the sake of restoration, for the sake of God's mission, a mission that goes right back to the problem that was introduced at the fall. And we really need to keep that in mind to understand this today. Now, we took a break from preaching through Genesis last week, and we honoured our mums with Mother's Day. But if you were here the week before that, we learned about how Sarai and Abram tried to speed the whole process up by trying to see that Abraham would have a child by his wife's servant or slave. And we learned about Hagar and we learned about Ishmael. And it's quite likely that while 13 years have passed, that Abram was still kind of in the dark about how it was all going to work. I think that we've got reason to understand that he probably was still thinking that Ishmael was going to be the way that God would keep his promise. And so as we've been thinking about how God's promises are beautiful, but, but the people, like there's an ugly side to the human heart and the human condition and the way that we interact with God. Well, right in the heart of this, we're going to see that again today with a big old belly-laughing uh, Abraham as he hears about this son that he's eventually going to have all these years later. So we've got a very simple break-up. There's an outline in your, at the very bottom of the Bible passage. If that helps you to see through, we're just going to see how God says it again, how God assigns a sign, and how ultimately God calls the shot. So the first eight verses, they are where he says it all again. 13 years have passed. And like we've said, the accounts are dipping in and out. Abraham, I reckon, would have just been carrying on raising Ishmael as his son. And what is happening here is God is coming and he's revealing a whole lot more about himself. He's revealing a whole lot more about himself. I got a call from someone uh, looking for help this week. They were just I think dialing every church in the area, and this guy, unfortunately, was a little bit farther away, but I hooked him up with a church down in Grafton. But just as I was thinking about this conversation I had with this guy, what he said to me initially was one thing, but the more that he spoke to me, the more that it actually painted a picture of who this guy was and what his need was. And if you think about how that kind of works, when you meet someone that you don't know that well or meet someone new... It's actually the more that they talk, the more that you get to know them. That's what we normally say. But, but it's actually the more that it reveals about who they are. And sometimes it's not that you find a surprise, although that can happen. But often it's just a, a depth that you don't get on a first impression or a first kind of comp, uh, comment. And as you get that depth, you actually get a clearer picture. Now, I think that's what's going on mainly here. Really, when you nut down what God says here is going to happen to Abraham, 
There's no like curveball surprises there. But it is a whole lot more depth and it does give a much greater picture. Just think about all that Abraham has had from God up to this point. God has spoken to him. God's acted powerfully in his life. God has appeared in visions to him. And over the space of this 25 years, it's been an increasing, an increasing revelation of himself to Abraham. God's kind of bit by bit made the picture clearer. Now, I don't know whether he picked it up, but this actually starts in verse 1 with something that we haven't had yet. It tells us here that God appeared to him. Appeared to him. Just consider what that would have been like. God appeared to him when he was 99 years old. He's spoken to him. He's been there in a vision, in a dream before. But God's here with him. And he says, I am God Almighty. That's the introduction that God gives himself. The Almighty God. Now, there's no new information here. But there is new detail, and that new detail is deeper inside. And as Abraham responds to it, look at what verse 3 tells us. He falls face down. He falls face down. Now just think about what that symbolizes, to fall face down. That's to put yourself in total trust of that person that you're there with. You're at the mercy of that person, face down in front of them. It's a position of, Submission. Now, submission, that's a bit of a dirty word in our culture, isn't it? You don't submit to anyone. We're, we're anti-authoritarian, particularly Australians. We're, we're blind to this, but we are. We really like that. Here he is in submission to God. And by bowing down in front of him, he's saying, God, I'm in your hands. And as he does that, God reveals this, this grander picture of who he is. This grander picture comes in these next verses. 17.4 tells that Abraham's going to be the father of many nations. In verse 5, he, he says that you'll have a new name, and that new name reflects that. Abraham, literally meaning father of many nations. Verse 6 tells us that kings are going to come from him. Verse 7 is telling him that his covenant is going to be everlasting. And in verse 8, the whole land is going to be an everlasting possession for him. It's a grander picture. It's more detail and it's greater depth. But at the heart of it is the relationship. It's the relationship that God desires with Abraham. And that relationship, like all relationships, is built on trust. We know that, don't we? Relationships are built on trust. So it's kind of no surprise that after 25 years that Abraham's getting to this kind of depth in his relationship with God and that God's revelation of himself to him is lining up with this. And so what does God say? We've got to go back to verse 1. As God appears to him, he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now God, God could just in his God powers, go bam, power, his blessing, and just have thrown that on Abraham 25 years back, blessed him to the hilt. He could have just revealed everything about himself in one foul swoop. But what we see is God relates in a far more dynamic way. It's 
not just like that. It's not just this one big whoop. But it's over a gradual period of time as trust is built. As trust is built. There's been movements within Christianity that try to paint a picture that God, God's normal way is to, is to do that bam pow, signs and wonders, miracles, bang, here it all is all at once. Maybe you've had contact with like a Pentecostal church or some people that teach like those kind of things. Maybe you've been taught that you're only really saved or blessed when you have these kind of extra spiritual, supernatural experiences. I remember someone that I kind of grew up alongside, he was in the area, a guy I'd go on Christian camps with. I remember him recounting to me in his early 20s that he went forward in so many altar calls at churches that he thought he'd become a Christian like 20 or 30 times because he was caught up in people that liked to teach the Bible this way. What I think the Bible consistently shows and and what this story illustrates here is that yes, God does give powerful signs and that we shouldn't be closed to that in our lives. But to be aware of how they happen and to be aware that at the heart of what it is to be a Christian is to have relationship with God. And relationship with God is ultimately um, developed as we learn to trust God. Like I said before, God relates to us in a far more dynamic way than that. So wherever that fits, we've got to remember the purpose that it serves. The purpose that any kind of miraculous thing that we might see or experience, well, ultimately what God's about is the relationship with us. To walk blamelessly and to walk faithfully in front of him. And as we go on, this passage actually takes us to a far more tangible sign, a far more tangible sign when we get to talking about circumcision in a minute. But just go back to verse 3 for a second with me. And just think about that posture of falling face down in front of God. Falling down is forgetting everything else. It's you and God. And ultimately, that is what matters. That's what matters. And in that, it's God taking you deeper in an understanding of who he is and of who you are in him or who you are in Christ. Who you are in Christ. To walk before God faithfully and to be blameless. That's where we're at. Now, at the end of this, because, you know, it's still ugly humanity, sinful humanity, what comes next? Well, this is the second point. God assigns a sign. God tells Abraham that he's going to give a sign of this promise that he's made to them. And this is where all the blokes cross their legs because it's a bit uncomfortable to talk about. Why on earth did God pick circumcision? I don't know what kind of questions you've got lined up for heaven, but that's one of mine. Now, this isn't the invention of circumcision. This is not 
you know, it probably was, there's plenty of evidence that was practiced around the place. I don't want to think about what kind of blunt instruments they had back at the time. But just think about what it is. It's in the skin. That's what it says in the text. It's in the skin. And so it's going to be a permanent reminder of God's work and God's promise. And it's not only that, it's actually in the reproductive organ. So it's not just privately in the men, but it's there on display when he's laying with his wife. And so for that reason, we've got to see this as a sign that's all related to the offspring of Abram, which is very central to God's promise. It ties right back, actually, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says, as he, as he comes and confronts Adam and Eve after their sin, while he's cursing the snake, the, the serpent who was there deceiving them, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And we, we talked about this back when we started this series and we, we know, we might well know, that that's a, a very vague but very early picture of this promise that someone would descend from the woman who would come and deal with evil who we ultimately understand to be Jesus. Already for women, they carry the promise that God, through their offspring, through their reproduction, will bring about God's salvation plan. It's very foreign for us to try to get our minds into this and think the way that this is. But this is the, this is the understanding. This is how we're, we can have an understanding of it. And so it's in the man's skin, but... But in the act of reproduction, it reminds the woman too of the promise, of her promise of salvation. There's actually a really confusing verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2.15, and I'll flash it up there and I won't say too much about it, but that verse is probably referring to this as well. But ultimately, what I want you to understand is that this is getting us to Jesus. And so we go to verse 11 of chapter 17 again. And we ask the question, well, who gets circumcised? And God says, well, Abraham, it starts with you. And then in verse 12, it's the generations after him. And then after that, it's anyone in his household. Now, of course, people in his household household are going to be people that aren't part of his family. And that actually gets us right back to the bigger picture of the promise, isn't it? People from other nations, they're getting circumcised too. I mean, it sounds a bit like, Ophrah, you get a circumcision too. You get one too. Everyone gets one. A bit strange to get excited about that. But it's the promise that God's blessing is coming. It's the promise that God's blessing is coming. And it's a sign, but it's also a command. It's a sign and it's also a command. We've got to understand it in that context. See, God, just think about everything that's come before this. There's no way that you could make a case that by getting circumcised, that's going to be the thing that, that promises God's blessing or guarantees God's blessing or secures it or gives them ultimately salvation. It would be completely confused to say that. It's quite clear already that God has started his rescuing of them. 
There's plenty of places in our New Testament that actually picks up on this idea, and this is something the early church had to grapple with. Romans 4 is one passage that I'll just flick up for a second, and it makes us clear that Abraham was already justified. We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, not his circumcision. It was before his circumcision that the Bible says that. Yet as he's gone on, God has given him this as a sign. A bit like this thing, my wedding ring. I just took it off. Did I just get unmarried? It's, that would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? Of course it didn't. Take it on and off and it doesn't change whether I'm married or not. But in the wedding vows of the marriage covenant, we made promises and we made them with rings as symbols of what we've promised to each other. For Abraham and his dependents, as the promise is passed on, that's the sign that God gave them. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You don't want to mistranslate that with the word cut off in there, but for descendants of Abraham to refuse it, well, it didn't, it didn't stop God's blessing, but it was going to be a sign of rejection of God's promises. It's one of those things. It doesn't save you, but... But to disobey it, it's like a, 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 an upfront way of saying, no, God, I don't want your blessings. And to receive it, see, that was no guarantee either of genuine faith. And if you're feeling a little bit confused, that's okay, because it is a bit confusing. And it's just an act that humans can do to one another, isn't it? But later, later, and, and more so in our Bible, God talks about, Another type of circumcision. It's not done with a knife and it's not done in an uncomfortable part of our body, but it deals with the ugly part of our body. And that's the circumcision of the heart. And ultimately that's something done by God. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, this is the first instance, I think, in our Bibles where we hear this kind of language. But God says to his people, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. That's the ultimate thing that we need, don't we? New and renewed hearts. Now, we go on and we're on our third point now. And it's evident in what happens next that just nicking Abraham's foreskin doesn't ultimately transform his heart. He's still thinking all that God's talking about is going to come through Ishmael, his son that, you know, was a result of their scheming mistake. Verse 15, it starts with a new name for Sarai. She gets a new name too. And now, actually, when you look at her new name, it's really just changed one letter, and it doesn't change the meaning at all. Sarai, Sarah. They both actually mean the same thing. They both mean princess. But the difference is, is that Sarah is from way out there. And Sarah is the way that you say that name in this new land where they are or where they will be. 
It's a bit like the difference between New Zealanders and us. They say fosh and we say fish. But it's a tell as to what land you're in. And so God's saying that. Your new name is Sarah. He's saying you now belong here. And just think about the meaning of that name. It means princess. Now, princess is very different to queen, isn't it? The queen, she's the top dog, but the princess... She's living under the rule of the queen, but is still royal. And it perfectly describes what it is to be living under God's rule, isn't it? You're part of the family and you're looked after. So here she is with a new name. And so we get to verse 16 and God says, I will bless her and I will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her that she will be the mother of nations Kings and peoples will come from her. And this is it. God is telling Abraham that at 99, he's going to get his 90-year-old wife, who's been barren all her life, pregnant. And so verse 17, Abraham falls face down again. But it's not all that we said before. It's not trust. It's not submission It's not walking faithfully and blameless in front of God. He's there because he's in a fit of laughter, laughing in God's face. Not submission, but disbelief. And what's he going to do? He pleads, God, spare us the embarrassment. Just bless Ishmael, would you, and get on with it. That's effectively what he's saying. Even when Sarah hears it later in chapter 18, She overhears it. She cracks up as well. But God's not short on the detail. Just scan over verses 19 to 22. And God again, patient, full of mercy, reveals that it's in his hands. And that his beautiful promises, they will prevail. And then he goes out. God, God leaves. There's a mass circumcision and they obey. How do we respond to God? We've uncovered in the last few weeks when we might act out of fear or out of impatience. But if you're anything like me, you might also tend to a whole bunch of other traits A bit like you see in Abraham here, maybe that kind of self-reliance, that kind of work it out yourself, that that self-justification. Oh, look, I I didn't really, you know, uh," or self-righteousness, thinking that you've got it all together. Those are my battles week by week, year by year, as I'm being chiseled away at. We're looking at Abraham, remember, over a period of 25 years. How old is your faith anyway? As you're being chiseled away by God and and your hard heart is being circumcised by God in Christ, how do you respond to God? This is a little thing that's been on my mind that shows my kind of self-righteousness and my pride and 
and the stuff that I battle with. At the beginning of 2020, I said, okay, it's time again. I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year, get one of those reading plans. And I set off and I was going really well. And there was times in doing that that it was super rich and real encouragement to me. But there's been plenty of times where it's on my headphones and it's an audio Bible and I'm listening to it and my mind's just wandering off on what I've got on that day or what I want to, you know, search up on Facebook Marketplace to buy next or other stupid stuff that I get distracted out about. Or sometimes it's like, oh, just doing it out of duty. And I reckon in me some of the times when it is really rich, it's rich for a while until I actually feel prideful about how rich it is that God's speaking to me in this way. I mean, I'm embarrassed to talk about this. Here's the real tell. I've got one day to go on a 12-month Bible reading plan that I started in January 2020. That's pretty telling, isn't it? It's the middle of May. I've struggled through it and struggled with pride. But those times when it's been rich, it's been like a chisel on my heart. Any of our tending towards self-justification or self-righteousness, thinking that we're the ones that work it out for ourselves, sometimes that manifests when we think that we're in control of our circumstances. Do you get like this? Thinking you've got it all figured out and you've got you know, like a chessboard set up and this person's here and this money's here and this, and I've got it all in control. And that so quickly crosses over. I mean, like we've got to, we've got to you know, live responsibly, yes. But how often, how frequently does that cross over to the point where we want to take control of stuff that only God has control of? James speaks to this in James chapter 4, verse 13 to to 15. I'll share it with us. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know that what will happen happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are the mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, we ought to say, If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Imagine what embarrassment Abraham would have been spared if he just stayed face down, trusting in God. Imagine if what embarrassment he would have been spared if he just got up and did exactly what he said. But not right in the middle of it laughed in God's face and tried to plead with God that it would happen some other way. How do you respond to God? In our Christian walk, we've got signs too. And these signs, you know, we are free from this circumcision business, which, which you might be very pleased about. Um, definitely not what we're going home to do today. But God has given us signs. And I just want to highlight what these signs take us to. There's two of them. It's the Lord's Supper and it's baptism. 
Firstly, the Lord's Supper. When Jesus initiated this, he said, this is the new covenant and it's in my blood which is poured out for you. What does that do for us? What is that a sign of? It takes us straight back to the cross. To the cross, the heart of our faith in him. The heart of his rescue plan. The thing that saves you to be with God forever. And what was done in his flesh is effective for me. It's what lies at the heart of God's fulfilling his promises to us. And think about that other sign, baptism, that picture of of going under the water and dying to that old life and, and rising to a new life. It's also a picture of being sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice like they do throughout the Old Testament. It's also that great picture of being washed clean of your sin. What a glorious thing. And these two separate signs, one that's there for us to do once in baptism And one that's there for us to do regularly. And neither of them save you. But God in his grace gives us these signs that take us back to the thing that does. And what a good God he is for doing that. Taking us back to the cross where God's blessing and mission reaches our life. That we know God Almighty. That we might live safely in the covenant with our almighty God. That we might be able by his spirit to walk blamelessly and live faithfully in his presence. And that we might see those outside blessed through us. How do you respond to God? When doubt creeps in, like it did for Abraham... One of the things God gives us to remember are these signs, but the ultimate thing that he gives us is the cross. So, you've got to remember. Remember your baptism. Remember that rich picture of God's grace in your life. When you take communion, remember the blood poured out. Remember Jesus' body broken. Remember Jesus and his sacrifice, delight in Jesus. And proclaim Jesus as you do these things. Maybe for some of you it is time to be baptised because that's something you've never done. Come and talk to me. We're having Lord's Supper in a couple of weeks. Make sure you don't miss it. But remember daily that every day, all the days that are not mentioned, remember daily there's the opportunity to delight and remember to grow trust, go grow trust in the God that is good. Let's finish with these words from Romans, reflecting on God's goodness in the gospel. Got Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, 
More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for you and for me. What a great position we're in. And what a great word we've got. What a great message we've got to share with people around us. Oh, that we wouldn't be ugly people that, that struggle in our doubt and laugh at the face of God, but that we would be strengthened. That's my prayer for us now, that God would strengthen our faith. Let's pray. Loving Father, oh Lord, we look at Abraham and we thank you for the mercy that you showed him. Lord, the persistence that you showed, the, the, the work that you did on his heart ultimately. Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you showed to him because we know that it's the grace and mercy that you show to each of us. And Lord, in our honest assessment of ourselves, Lord, we know that apart from you, we're in a desperate situation. So Father, build us up. Lord, that we would grow trust, dependent on your grace for the times when we ignore you or are impatient or acting out of fear or laughing in your face. And Lord, etch into our heart and mind as you circumcise our hearts, Lord, that truth that in Christ we are secure and that you are there, that he is there interceding for us on our behalf. Lord, grow us and shape us, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.